Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Earl Tupper, the inventor of Tupperware, is at a Tupperware party, believe it or not. This is hypothetical. I'm making this up to make a point. Anyway, he's at a Tupperware party, and he's sitting in the corner, and he's scowling, because the air around him is full of laughter as a group of women take turns to mock their husbands in a thinly-veiled party game that they've devised. And on a table in front of them are piles of Earl's plastic containers. The containers themselves are beautiful in their simplicity, simple in their design, almost puritanical in their ethos, except that several are now filled with frozen daiquiris and the atmosphere in the party is getting a little bit, uh, a little bit fruity, shall we say. And standing in the middle of this scene is a woman called Brownie Wise. This is the woman who invented the Tupperware party in which Tupperware products are sold. And it's the parties that made Earl a millionaire. And she's flailing her arms around saying, girls, she's got a Southern accent, so imagine a Southern accent. Girls, she says, look up to the stars, reach to the stars because anything you want can be yours including this beautiful Tupperware. That was a very bad Southern accent, I apologise, but you get the idea. Anyway, back to Earl, sitting there in the corner. The scowl on his face deepens. Da-da-da! Welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions. It's a podcast where I get to talk about interesting things to interesting people. And today I'm talking about Tupperware, which sounds kind of utilitarian and, you know, dull, but has a really, really interesting history and a fantastic story. We all have a cupboard in our kitchen, I suggest, which is filled with Tupperware boxes, most of which are missing their lids. Most of the lids are missing their boxes. And they generally create lots of mess in the cupboard and fall out when you open the door. But Tupperware is very interesting because it epitomises really the post-war suburban American dream. But if you pop open the lid and peek inside the history of Tupperware, you will notice that not all is as it seems. Because there was a battle with the soul of Tupperware, a battle fought between the inventor of the Tupperware box, a man who stood for conformity, simplicity and such values and the inventor of the Tupperware party who was a woman who stood for something much more subversive. My guest today to discuss all this is Alison Clark. She's a professor of design history and theory at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna and she is the author of the fascinating book Tupperware, The Promise of Plastic 
in 1950s America. Alison, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. How the heck did you... You've written a book about the history of Tupperware, not just a kind of a little, you know, a proper book on the history of Tupperware. Who knew that Tupperware had such a detailed and interesting history? It is an amazing history. And I think what inspired me to write it was, firstly, I didn't have any Tupperware in my own home growing up. I was one of those poor kids at school with just a bit of silver foil or brown paper. Wait, was Tupperware kind of, is it a symbol of affluence? I never really considered it as a particular symbol of affluence. I think it was, it was, it was in Britain, it was really aspirational because it only actually arrived in the 60s with the growth of new builds, suburban houses and stuff. So it was a 50s American product, but it only arrived in Britain as this kind of aspirational type of thing. So yeah, it was definitely, I was the kid at school with brown paper and didn't quite understand why I didn't have a pink plastic tub. Mm. You know what I had when for, for school sandwiches? I had, it was an old Walls ice cream plastic thing, which basically was a kind of a Tupperware box. Yes, that's exactly the kind of thing my parents would have used. Yeah. Why waste money on fangled American plastic stuff when you can use yeah. an old ice cream tub? Well, actually, this is a, an interesting story because, of course, we've got an engineering story, the invention of Tupperware, which we'll come to in a moment. But also the kind of the language of Tupperware, it kind of goes from, I suppose, a utilitarian object to a kind of modernist, socialist, value-laden product through to a kind of postmodernist, you know, artifacts. <laughs> it, you know, it takes us through all kinds of interesting avenues. But why don't we start, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with the kind of utilitarian object, that kind of rather Spartan object. Where did it come from originally and who, where did the name come from? The inventor of Tupperware was Earl Tupper, who was this slightly mad and actually woman-hating inventor which was unfortunate because... Why his, was he a woman? He, well, happened? his product, what? I should probably clarify that. His product began as a utilitarian product. It was supposed to be for farmers and kind of chemists to store stuff in. But he simply didn't sell it. He tried to advertise it really desperately, unsuccessfully across America in 1949. And then a lady called Brownie Wise discovered this product and started selling it on the door-to-door sales plan kind of introducing it, literally knocking on people's doors and created the Tupperware party. That's kind of part two of the story, if you like. That's going to, that's the sort of explosion of that. I just want to, let's just talk about Earl Tupper. Is that his name? Earl Tupper. So it's 1949. Kitchens were not filled with plastic in 1949. They were filled with china and porcelain and other things. What was his relationship with the material, first of all? Like, What was the inspiration for making this box, this rather puritanical, utilitarian object? Mm. Earl Tupper was a sort of inventor tinker from New England. And he worked in the burgeoning plastics industry during that time. And really, plastic, people didn't understand what exactly it could be used for. It was very experimental. So there were loads of disasters like disintegrating shower curtains and plastic salad bowls that kind of dissolved on contact with vinegar. So it's very much experimental and Tupper worked in a plastic factory and started to experiment with injection molding and created a container that was like they had an inverted, it was an inverted version of a paint tin, if you can imagine that, the lid, and created this airtight lid. 
So the whole idea was to try and get plastic into people's homes, this alien product, and he called it poly-T material of the future. Uh, it wasn't even described as Tupperware at that point. That came much later. That's interesting. So yes, so this new burgeoning world of plastics, it was the future. There was this rather brave new world Jetsons thing about sort of plastic post-war that was going to change everything. Well, House, House Beautiful had a whole series about kind of a, that created a sort of landscape of plastic. It actually mapped it out. So polyethylene, perspex, to try and explain to the consumer, particularly women, what they could use plastic for. So it was this like a kind of uncharted territory, literally. And so that's what Earl Tupper was trying to do as well, break into this new plastic consumer culture with his product. Was he aiming for the Tupperware box? I mean, or was he just kind of pootling around in his factory and he think, oh, look what I've made. That would be good for storing sandwiches in. Or was he looking to create... Did he have the idea first? I'm trying to get a sense of the process. Yeah, well, what's important to know about, although this kind of product ended up in the Museum of Modern Art, New York, as this beautiful, pristine, utilitarian, form-follows-function modernist object, but actually Tupper was also creating these completely crazy things like plastic telescopic tie racks and all sorts of kind of junk stuff that was totally gimmicky and novelistic. So really Tupperware was a kind of an an accident among lots of many wacky products like upside down underwater spectacles and all sorts of crazy things. And reading his invention notebooks, it's just amazing. Does his notebook exist? Is that Absolutely. Is it? It's housed in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington and it is a delight to read because it's the ramblings of a 1930s inventor imagining this whole new world. And also there's a communist threat at the time and he starts to become slightly interested by communist ideas, but then is capitalism the thing that's going to solve the world's ills? So it's very much a product. It's definitely not neutral. He's definitely using it to search for some kind of utopian America. Why Actually, one more thing. Why was he a woman hater? He said he was a misogynist. What was going on there? What was the... Well, an interesting observation to make about these invention notebooks and his whole, the way he thought about inventions, was he got his ideas from the women that surrounded him, from his sister's his mother. So he came up with things like matching nail implants and knitting needles, like completely off the wall stuff, but they were all inspired by the women around him. And so he was completely surrounded by the domestic culture that inspired his inventions. But when it came to the Tupperware party and being surrounded by women that made the product successful, he was absolutely terrified by them. <laughs> Which was a bit unfortunate <laughs> because it made him a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, well, I've never been to a Tupperware party, but I, you know, crikey. We'll come on to Tupperware parties in a moment. I just, so he invents the Tupperware box. How did we get from there to Tupperware parties? I, was it, he wasn't a very good salesman or what happened? No, I think he invented actually, the first object was actually this Wonder Bowl, the very simple bowl with a lid. And he had a warehouse in Rhode Island, absolutely packed to the ceiling with this stuff that he couldn't shift. He'd tried all sorts of elaborate advertising techniques and department store demonstrations, and it failed to sell. So it, it was just a woman, Brownie Wise, that happened to find this product in a catalogue. And she thought, wow, this would be great to sell in people's homes to other women, among other women. And so she became the most successful salesperson. She was buying it from El Tupper, and he was, most of his stuff was being sold to her to then sell on. And so she pitched him the idea that this product should be sold exclusively through parties. 
did that exist before? Because when we think of that, we think of kind of Anne Summers parties and we think of Tupperware parties. But I'm just, where did these sort of advent of party selling, party plans arrive? In the 1920s, there had been aluminium ware sales parties. And there was also the Fuller Brushman, this kind of renowned, iconic figure in American culture who went door to door selling different types of brushes. So it had existed before, but it had never been an actual kind of party party. And the thing about Tupperware was it was kind of frozen daiquiris that you could slightly subvert the party theme. But it looked like women were just doing something dull and domestic, but they could actually socialise. And quite a lot of the games that were in the centre of the Tupperware party were very much kind of letting off steam about their frustrated domestic lives and boring husbands. So it is a social indoctrination story as well, the Tupperware well, party, isn't it? It's a way of, yes. the sort of symbol of liberating women from domestic drudgery and here is a way of expressing domesticity that hadn't been done before. I think I started my whole book thinking it was the ultimate capitalist trick to lure these women into selling stuff in their own homes and buy a whole load of kind of useless plastic stuff. But I met so many women that were actually liberated by getting paid by belonging to a kind of network of other women that supported them, that during the 1950s and 60s had no other opportunities to work flexibly, that I started to kind of dial down my judgmental idea about Tupperware and what it did, because actually many women genuinely did benefit from being part of this corporate culture that celebrated women. Okay, take us to a Tupperware party. It's 1950 something. What happens when I turn up at a Tupperware party? Okay, you turn up at a Tupperware party. Firstly, you have to be in the know to receive an invitation. So you have to be in certain social circles to get the invitation to the Tupperware party. Interesting. You come into the... Which is fun. Which is fun. The host's living room, and it might be very beautifully decorated. And then a Tupperware hostess will serve refreshments while a demonstrator shows you the products. And quite often that might involve things like filling a Tupperware bowl with water, flinging it across the room, kind of showing you how you can make a frozen strawberry daiquiri and a cocktail shaker. So it's very performative and fun. And you then, the hostess who's given her home over to this party can get gifts according to how much is sold within her living room. And then within the living room in the guests also get recruited to become hostesses so you can see how it spreads through suburbia it's like a pyramid selling thing it's not pyramid no it's definitely not pyramid because there actually is a product involved and they're actually mm. you know it's definitely more horizontal as a business structure and women start helping each other to build up sales teams in a particular area and they end up with the franchise so but it's very convivial and the idea is it's very convivial. Obviously, lots of people, lots of women feel obliged to attend a Tupperware party that their good friend has put on. So there is a lot of moral, social obligation involved and feeling like you've got to buy something. Well, it, I know. Well, it's, it is embarrassing if you're sitting in your best friend's living room and they're advertising this thing and demonstrating this wonderful product to, to not buy it. I think the pressure is to not buy it would be quite immense. I was like, okay, 
just to be nice, you're going to buy it, aren't you? Yeah, and I think that's the thing about when you look at the adverts, they're all from the 50s in America in particular. It's all lots of white nuclear families looking yeah. really jolly with beautiful suburban. But that actually isn't the truth at all about Tupperware because it works best in places with very coherent social networks, like where lots of women know each other and they're extended families. In actual fact, it worked really well in particular ethnic groups like Latino or Jewish networks of Tupperware salespeople. And that's even true today, is that it's done really well in Central South America, where there's still lots of women that actually there's lots of familial structures and stuff. So definitely takes advantage of social kind of networks. There was an interesting line of yours I read in one of your articles. It talked about the glamorization of domesticity as a form of entrapment. <laughs> were those my words? <laughs> I, yeah, they were your words. I asterisked it because I was like, that's a great line. It's like, as a form of entrapment. Yeah. Was it a con of a way of keeping the kitchen central to women's lives, but without them feeling the drudgery of it all? I think it was. I mean, it Tupperware came out at the same time as arch-feminist Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, which was an expose. Her book was an expose of the myth of the wonderful housewife's life. And Tupperware encapsulates everything she was trying to say in that book about there being a whole generation of women who were living on Valium to survive their dreadfully dull lives of serving children and husbands. And so, yeah, Tupperware definitely adds in. But what I want to say is that doesn't mean the women who sold it and had the parties were really like that, because I quickly found out there was a lot of subversion going on, a lot of things that maybe the Tupperware company didn't know about that were going on in Tupperware parties. And like what kind yeah. of what kind of things? I think political subversion. No, though, interesting you should mention that because one of the best articles I read was from the early 70s from a journal called Radical Feminism. And it was about infiltrating Tupperware parties in order to raise consciousness about, you know, consciousness raising exercise to make Tupperware women into feminists. So it was definitely seen as very conservative, but that you could maybe utilise the same technique to politicise women and make them see the light. So it's quite funny. But no, I think it was more gossiping about husbands, basically kind of. One of the favourite party games was write an advert to sell your husband which just involve women listing all the terrible things about their own husbands and then trying to get rid of them by writing a false advert to put a polish on their husband's snoring or their lack of kind of help around the house. So there were, it's, and some of them, yeah, I mean, alcohol wasn't supposed to be served at Tupperware parties, according to the corporate rules, but of course it was frequently. And some of the best Tupperware parties even today are obviously drag Tupperware parties and it obviously... It does not stay within just this kind of heterosexual, gender binary sort of territory. It's definitely gone off piste in that respect. It sounds like it follows the sort of cultural norms of Facebook, of social media now. The Tupperware party was a kind of a proto-social media Facebook group. Well, in some ways, I've never thought of it like that, but it's definitely about kind of who you know and who gets liked enough to come to the Tupperware party and who's out of the Tupperware party. And then the kind of obligation, even if you don't want to be sociable, that you've got to attend these things. So, yeah, definitely there is kind of element of that. But I think the most important thing about it, Tupperware, is that it's what I discovered very quickly when I was researching it was it, very little of it is about the actual plastic container. It's just yes. all the cultural kind of rituals around it. 
and it's made. Well, that's it. It's interesting because here we are doing a program about the invention of Tupperware. And it's like, well, okay, there was a guy, Earl Tupper, and he invented a plastic box using new materials. And that's kind of where it ends. And he's an interesting guy, but it's sort of where the story, but it doesn't end there because, as you say, this is not a story about a plastic box. This is a story about human social values and the values we attribute to our things in our life and the artifacts in our lives. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let's, I just want to go back a little bit. I want to talk about Brownie Wise, the woman who invented the Tupperware party. Can you just tell us a little bit about her? Because we haven't really established who she was and where she got her ideas from. And that would be useful, I think. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting because not only is it a, a story about a man and a woman, you know, it's definitely the man creates this stereotypical utilitarian patented object and then the woman makes it all frilly and attractive and sells it to other women. It's really culturally a Tupper. Earl Tupper was very Protestant, New England. He saw himself as creating this almost sacred object. And he fell out with Brownie Wise because she was the woman who built up the business, Tupperware Home Parties. But rumor had it that she'd fed her dog, her pet dog, from a Tupperware bowl. And Earl Tupper found out about this. And that was the beginning of the end for Brownie Wise because she'd insulted his kind of sacred, simple object by putting it on the ground and letting an animal eat from it. And 
Whereas he was, I would say, quite middle class or self-made, completely self-made kind of business person. But Brownie Wise was very much more popular culture. She was a single mother. Her husband had abandoned her. And I think she also came from a Jewish background, which had a completely different, within American immigration, had a completely different relationship to consumption and consumer culture. So kind of all of the sort of glamour and she wasn't trying to create this purity around Tupperware. She wanted the fun element. And Earl Tupper was this slightly grumpy, boring inventor man, really. <laughs> <laughs> there's, but there's an interesting sort of clash of cultures, a sort of clash of values based around a simple box. Absolutely. One of the best pieces of the research was looking at photographs of their homes. So Brownie Wives was still alive when I did the research and I actually interviewed her and it was amazing. She, I would have been selling Tupperware that afternoon if I could have. She was so amazing. She told me to look up to the stars, reach to the stars. Anything I wanted could be mine. She was amazing. And meanwhile, Earl Tupper, and so her home had been, I'd seen all the pictures of her home. It was in, She had like flamingo pink sofas and she had a pink canary, a dyed pink canary. Totally amazing. Whereas Earl Tupper's home was totally New England, antique furniture, really austere. So they could not have been further removed from each other culturally. It's so interesting because, of course, when you think about the Tupperware box just as an object, it is a kind of Puritan object. It's simple. It's clean lines. You know, it's that. And yet the story becomes flamboyant and ridiculous, not ridiculous, but about so many different things and aspirational and fashionable and everything else. And it's really interesting how both of those languages are woven into this box. Absolutely. And Earl Tupper really resented the fact that his invention didn't sell because it was good and pure and functional. It sold because of all of the trappings of the Tupperware party and the, the kind of cultural messiness of these women getting together. And he really resented that. He sacked Brownie Wise, even though she'd made him a millionaire. She left Tupperware with the com- company with absolutely nothing and went on to be a potter. Oh, there you go. Cultural messiness. This is our take-home fact about the Tupperware. Actually, let's just talk about the box itself. What, I mean, apart from the cultural messiness and the values and, and the social politics surrounding it, what was in, for those women who were selling it? Like, what was the functional reason why somebody wanted to buy it? What was the kind of revolutionary thing, just from a practical point of view? I think time saving. The idea that you could save leftovers, you could bulk cook and store it, and you didn't have to be a slave to the kitchen because you could be more rational. It could be a rationalised kitchen. And they actually demonstrated before and after cupboards. So it's sort of really tied into this American self-help culture that you could better yourself through Tupperware. You know, you could improve yourself and your kitchen. I suppose I want to move on now. There's obviously a lot of meaning, social meaning within Tupperware, but I wonder how it's changed now. That picture I mentioned at the beginning, that picture in that that article of yours of just cupboards stuffed full of Tupperware. We use Tupperware as a catch-all term, a bit like Hoover, but there are so many different brands now. Does it? It doesn't have that same. The language of Tupperware has completely changed, hasn't it? It doesn't mean the same thing anymore. It's not aspirational. It is in other parts of the the world. Absolutely. I mean, there's a big difference. And that's the bizarre thing. So in, a, in an age where plastic is highly problematic, it's disposable, 
And yet the whole idea around Tupperware is you keep it, you, it lasts a long time because it's high quality plastic. And the idea was that you passed it down your through your family. So, you know, many of us have inherited Tupperware from <laughs> grandmothers. Or what, yeah, we've got these old I Tupperware. still have my mother's ice have... cream box, my mother's <laughs> whatever. I think it was Lion's ice cream plastic box with my sandwiches. That's with an old, not the same. I think it's, I know it's not the same. Sorry, carry I interrupt. That should definitely be got rid of. <laughs> Now, I think, so in other parts of the world, it's definitely still aspirational, precisely because it's branded Tupperware. It's not just stuff you can pick up. So what they've done, the kind of the object penetrates different cultures and acts as a sort of anthropological product, because from the product and what's happening in the parties, that feeds back into the company. So the company is actually getting marketing research from whatever happens with the Tupperware parties. So that's why it can infiltrate cultures so effectively. So in a Japan in the 60s, they would have kimono keeps, like use one of the boxes to put a kimono in. But in France, it would be used for something completely different. So they're culturally nuanced wherever they go. I have a question about this idea of the party as a sales technique. Like, Why is it that we only think of Tupperware and Anne Summers. Like, what is it about those two particular brands that lends itself to parties where sort of other things don't? Well, I guess the common denominator is women, isn't it? And it's the idea that it's women having to have some sanctioned reason to get together socially and that there has to be some kind of product focus. So definitely they're the flip side of each other. I'm sure there have been mixed Tupperware and summer's parties in many a household. (laughs) I've never visited them, but I suspect suspect that's been a theme. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to not and some. I was going to ask about Tupperware. Like you must have gone to a Tupperware party for your when you were doing research. I was horrified. Yeah, I mean, I was completely mystified. It's my my own mother's idea of hell was going to a Tupperware party. So she was probably a bit like old Tupper. She really didn't like the idea of forced female sociality, you know, being forced to go on a hen night or forced to go and talk about plastic containers in someone's living room. So I grew up almost terrified of this product. So when I first went to one, I was really shocked to find out that people did seem to at least initially talk about the plastic product before they kind of started gossiping. But yeah, it was quite weird. How does it work? So you go in and you all sit down and everyone's a bit, I don't know, a bit, must be a bit, well, no, presumably everyone knows each other. No, they can be neighbours. They can be neighbours. So that's an important point. If you imagine all these housing states in the 50s and 60s where women were moved, they were totally alone. They didn't know anyone. So it also worked very well in places like that. So a way to get to know people was through a Tupperware party. And particularly women in Britain, because there was actually a really big sales study to explore the possibility of Tupperware working in any other country than the US. And the first place they tried was the UK. And it came back unequivocally saying, no, this will never happen in Britain because nobody would sell stuff in their own homes. It's absolutely vulgar and it would never work. And the reason it did work was because of American bases. And women on American bases got access to Tupperware. So it's kind of like smuggled goods. That's really And that's how it infiltrated into Britain. So When you went to your Tupperware party, did you enjoy it? I mean, did you buy Tupperware? Yeah, I did buy Tupperware, but I was I was slightly embarrassed. I wasn't sure what I was supposed That'd to buy. Be, I'd be mortified going to one of those. I think I'd feel very socially awkward going to one of those. Yeah, no, it was very weird. It was very just the whole concept of being in a room and being forced to buy products. And yeah, but people don't have time to go to parties anymore. So I think in the 80s, they tried a kind of yuppie version, like black matte Tupperware. 
that really didn't last long. You'd be very lucky to get hold of that now. I don't know what happened to it. It's probably in some amazing collection of Tupperware. But they tried to make it much more yuppie 80s because there was a problem with parties. And so now also there's a problem with obviously post-analogue world where who's got time to actually go to a physical party exactly they'll do it by zoom presumably yeah yeah absolutely and knowing a dealer kind of being in the know on who's the dealer is still really important except in places where they do sell it in shops in the u.s what are we going to do about um, people's cupboards full of Tupperware? Could, I wonder if Tupperware, the company, actually realised that it's driving everyone crazy, the fact that you open your cupboard and it's just a million boxes of lids that don't fit. Why haven't they? Why has no one developed a better way of keeping the lids and the boxes together? And- That's a good question. Someone will have. Perhaps there's a hack somewhere. There's probably a Tupperware hack artist who's... Uh, who's done a whole project on that, on how to keep them together. There will be, you. I'm sure if you look on YouTube, there'll be someone who's got a system. I think also it's a good point because they take up a lot of space. So they're obviously originally designed for American-sized cupboards that we just don't have in Europe. So I guess we maybe in Europe, maybe they just sell less, but I don't know, more precious objects and people cherish them for longer because they take up so much space. But yeah. That's it. You're absolutely right. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Go read Alison's book, Tupperware, The Promise of Plastic (laughs) in 1950s America. It's a terrific read. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. So there we go. You will never look at a Tupperware box in the same light again. Thank you very much for listening. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Don't forget, please to leave us a rating and a review if you've enjoyed the show. Don't forget to listen to all the other shows and don't forget to suggest the podcast to all of your friends as well. Uh, If you have got an idea for an episode you'd like us to cover, a story perhaps, or an invention you'd like us to discuss, get in touch. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your comments and your suggestions. Um, I will see you next time. Looking forward to it. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented 
for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.